I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, which is Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. Luke 24, 36 through 39, that's on page 859, if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews. And this is the last time, I think, in a while that I'm going to be having you turn to Luke. So we're wrapping up a ser- summer-long sermon series, working our way through this entire gospel, and this is uh, the final one uh, this morning. So Luke 24, verses 36 through 49. This is what Luke writes to the church back then, as well as to us as the church today. He says, while they, Jesus' disciples, were still talking about this, two of them have just had an experience of the, the post-resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. So while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He said to them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and will rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father promised, but wait in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, about a month ago, uh, the U.S. track team suffered a pretty shocking defeat uh, in the men's 4 by 100 relay. Uh, They were competing at the recent World Athletics Championships when an old problem, at least for the men's team, uh, resurfaced and they botched one of the handoffs. Now watching the relay, uh, at least to the untrained eye, you can hardly tell that anything went wrong. Um, But when when it came time for the third runner, Elijah Hall, to hand off the baton to the anchor, Marvin Bracey, it took numerous attempts for them to get it right. Uh, While that might not sound like that big of a deal, in a sport that comes down to milliseconds, that's all that it took for the Canadian team to slip into first place and take the win. After reading about all of that, uh, I decided to talk to an expert, my wife, Sarah. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Sarah is actually one of the Hope College record holders for the 4 by 400 meter relay, so she knows a thing or two about passing the baton. And she told me that the handoff is crucially important. In fact, it's one of the things that they would practice over and over and over on the track team. She said races can be won and lost there, just in the handoff. But simply, she said, it's extremely important to get it right. Uh, Just so you know, she also holds the record in the 400-meter hurdles, so we're hoping that our children get her athletic ability, not mine. Well, in the same way, Jesus is actually attempting a handoff here in our passage this morning, too. That's because he's handing off his his ministry, his message, the gospel of salvation. But he's not handing it off just to anybody. He's actually handing it off to us, 
He's handing it off to the church here. You see, instead of sticking around on earth and doing all the work of his kingdom himself, Jesus is instead passing it off to us, his people, his disciples, Christian believers. He's passing it off to us, and like runners in a relay race, it's crucially important for us to get that right. This passage takes place shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. In Luke chapter 22, uh, we read about Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and trial. Uh, In Luke 23, we read about his crucifixion, death, and burial. And then at the start of this chapter, Luke 24, we read about his resurrection. Uh, Like we said, shortly after that, we also see the first post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, when in verses 13 through 35 of this chapter, Jesus appears to two of his disciples on their way to the city of Emmaus. This text, though, the passage we're looking at this morning, records Jesus' first appearance to the apostles, to the eleven Uh, to Jesus' innermost circle of disciples. In other words, this is the first time that Jesus appears in his resurrected form to his most trusted and closest friends. And understandably, I think, they experience kind of a mixed set of emotions in response to that. Um, When they first see Jesus here, they are startled and frightened, thinking that they are seeing a ghost. Once they become convinced that it actually is Jesus in the flesh, though, They still don't believe, they doubt. Not the disbelief or doubt of of unbelief uh, per se, but instead the kind of disbelief that arises from overwhelming joy and amazement. And yet I wonder how long that joy and amazement would have lasted for Jesus' disciples here. That's because right after this text, Jesus, or Luke gives his account of Jesus' ascension into heaven. It's actually the first of two accounts that Luke gives of Jesus' ascension into heaven. The second is in his sequel book, the book of Acts. The point, though, is that Jesus isn't going to be sticking around. He's appeared to his disciples here, and yet just as soon as he's appeared to them, he tells them he's leaving. Why? I think there are actually a number of reasons for that. Um, For starters, as Jesus says over and over and over throughout the different Gospels, unless he leaves, the Holy Spirit won't come. While his disciples back then, and we as his disciples today, maybe actually feel that it would be better if Jesus had stuck around and stayed with us rather than giving us the Holy Spirit, for whatever reason, Jesus thinks it's better the other way around. Um, He wants us to have the Holy Spirit. And he makes clear that unless he leaves, the Holy Spirit won't won't come. The bigger reason Jesus leaves so quickly, though, I think has to do with us. And again, it's because he actually wants us as his people to take up his work. He wants his church, his community of disciples, this body of believers to take up the mantle of his ministry, the mission of his father, and the work of his kingdom. That's the handoff that we see going on here in this text. You see, Jesus knows, I think, that as long as he sticks around, people are going to expect him to do all the work. But if he leaves, then we'll have to be the ones to do it. And so, very simply, that's what I think we need to talk about this morning. Here at the end of Luke's gospel, the end of this sermon series, the end of this journey with Luke that I hope has helped us get to know and understand Jesus better, we need to talk about the work, the mission, and the calling that Jesus has left to us, his church, his people. 
What is that work, that mission, that calling that Christ has given us to do? What is this ministry that he expects to hand off to us here? What is it exactly that he expects us to do in his place as his people now that he's back in heaven? Three things. First, Jesus expects the gospel to be preached. Second, he expects it to be preached to all the nations, to the whole world. And then third, he expects us to be the ones doing it. So preach the gospel to everyone, and we're the ones to do it. Let's dive in. Preach the gospel. We'll start there. Uh, and we'll start with what might seem like an obvious question. What exactly is the gospel? Truth be told, though, I don't actually think that's that obvious of a question. Um, that's because I find myself continually surprised by the lack of clarity Christian believers, ministries, and even preachers and theologians seem to have about the gospel. Uh, for instance, I can't tell you how many worship services I've attended, conventions I've gone to, sermons I've listened to, where while it might be interesting or even helpful content, never really actually gets to the core of what we believe, never gets to the gospel. Now, this is something Calvin University chaplain Mary Hulse talks about in her fantastic book on preaching, a little handbook for preachers. She's speaking specifically to people like me, paid preachers, but I think it applies to all of us when it comes to how we talk about the gospel as Christians. She says it can be so easy for preachers to drift into Christian speeches instead of sermons. A Christian speech is a spoken address on a particular topic that may or may not refer to Scripture. A message on dating is a Christian speech, for example, or five ways to manage your money. When people hear a Christian speech, the chief agent of change is often the person hearing the speech. They walk away thinking something along the lines of, I really need to get my, and then fill in the blank whatever topic, money, sex life, children, marriage, devotional life, whatever it is, in order. But, she says, a sermon is an oral event in which the speaker humbles him or herself before the grand narrative of Scripture. And after seeking to understand what God is up to in a particular passage, invites the hearers to know God more. A sermon says this is how God acted in this passage, and he is acting in our lives in a similar way right now, today. Isn't that great? When people hear a sermon, God changes them, whether they like it or not. Pulse continues, what makes Christian preaching different from spiritual advice? As Christian preachers, we root our words in the grand narrative of Scripture. We love the story that changes lives. That's the difference. In a Christian speech, that change is up to us. I need to go do this, that, or the other thing. When we preach the gospel, it's God who does that work. In other words, to truly change us, to truly transform us, to affect and influence the world, Christian preaching, whether that's from a paid preacher like me or from any of those of us sharing the gospel, it has to get to God. It has to get to his grace, and it has to get to what God, through his grace, has done for us. If all we ever hear is application, you know, what we have to do, 10 ways to a better marriage or whatever it is. If all we ever hear is application, what we have to get better at, what we have to do, what we have to think or believe or get involved in, then our faith, unsurprisingly, can very quickly become all about us. This is actually something I see quite a bit in the North American church. It fits well with our American conception of ourselves. We are such a me-centered culture that like everything else in our lives, we like to make church all about us 
about what we like, about what we get out of it, about what we want. The only problem with that is that that's not the message of the gospel. Because the gospel isn't primarily about us. Instead, it's about God. And so as Hall says, that's what our preaching has to get to. It has to get to the gospel. It has to get to God. And it has to get to what he has done for us on our behalf. That's what truly changes hearts and minds. As one of my seminary professors used to say, the gospel doesn't first and foremost tell us who we are and what we need to go and do. Instead, the gospel tells us who God is and what he's already done for us. It tells us about his grace, his mercy, and his love. It does tell us who we are and what we need to do, but it always does that in response to what it tells us about God. And yet, even with all that in mind, we still haven't actually talked about the gospel, have we? Let's go back to that question. What actually is the gospel? Well, there's actually a great summary of it right here in our text. Look with me at verses 45 through 47. Luke writes, Then Jesus opened the disciples' minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. That's a pretty decent summary of it right there. That's it. That's the gospel. The word gospel means good news, and the good news that we hold to and cling to and believe as Christians is simply this. Though God made us good, we fell into sin. But God didn't leave us in our sin. Instead, in grace and mercy, he sent us a Savior, a Messiah, his Son, Jesus Christ. He came to live among us, to teach us, but most importantly, to suffer and die in our place for our sins. After three days, he was raised from the dead. And when we believe in his name and repent of our sins, our sins are forgiven and we are raised to that same new life in him. Certainly, there's more to it than just that, okay? Uh, In fact, the entire biblical storyline of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation, it's all part of the grand narrative of the gospel. But that's kind of the basic gist right there in verses 45 through 47. That's sort of the gospel in a nutshell. That's more or less the content of what we believe as Christians. And that's also the message that as Jesus says here, needs to be preached to the entire world. And Jesus actually gives a bit of a roadmap for how that'll work in this passage too. That's because after detailing the gospel and the message of repentance, he expects to be preached in his name. Jesus says in verse 47 that that message will be preached to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So the gospel message will start, it'll have its epicenter, its origin there in Jerusalem. Uh, Just so we're all on the same page, by the way, Jerusalem is is, and still is uh, the historic Jewish holy city. Uh, It's the historic seat of the Jewish faith. It's also coincidentally the location where many of the key events of the gospel story, uh, Jesus' arrest, uh, his death, uh, his crucifixion, his burial, uh, his resurrection, where all those took place as well. And yet, Jesus says, the gospel isn't going to stay there. It'll begin there, it has begun there, but then it's going to move out. It'll reverberate and ring out from Jerusalem. It'll start in Jerusalem, but then it'll ripple on out and find its way to the ends of the earth. Now what's interesting about that is that that's more or less a complete reversal of how most people back then would have thought of things. 
You see, more than once, the Old Testament prophets envisioned that in the days of the Messiah, people from the nations, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, non-Israelites from all over the place would come to Jerusalem. Motivated and captivated by the amazing news of Israel's Messiah, the prophets predicted that people from every tribe, language, nation, and people would come and gather in Jerusalem together in the holy city, the place of God's temple, the place where his very presence dwelt. And there in Jerusalem, they would experience the goodness and grace of God. We see that, for instance, in passages like Isaiah 66, Jeremiah 3, and Zechariah 8. There's this sense in each of those passages that when the Messiah finally comes, the message of God's grace would be so irresistible and so overwhelming and so captivating and so compelling that people from all over the world would hear it and be motivated and moved to go to Jerusalem to experience it. And yet what Jesus tells his disciples is that the exact opposite is about to happen. The gospel will will ring out from Jerusalem. The orientation here is outward, not inward. As Joel Green writes in his commentary on this passage, Jesus' words beginning from Jerusalem contain a perhaps subtle but vital transformation of normal orientation. One would normally have considered Jerusalem to be the center point to which the nations would come. In other words, a centripetal orientation for the universal mission. This is reversed in Jesus' missionary cartography, this roadmap he gives us here, which envisions instead a centrifugal missionary movement, one that is outward. What Green is saying there is that at least according to Jesus, the gospel isn't centered or focused on Jerusalem Instead, it's centered and focused on everyone outside of Jerusalem. And I would say the same should be true for us as Christians today. You see, one of the places that I feel like the church uh, these days, at least the North American church, sort of runs aground is our self-focus. But simply, a lot of churches exist and become all about themselves all about their own ministries, their own programs, their own communities, their own holy little huddle. And to be fair, none of that stuff is inherently bad in and of itself. Okay, ministries aren't bad, programs aren't bad, a healthy, vital sense of community in a church isn't bad either. What is bad, though, is when those things become ends unto themselves. Because the goal or purpose or intent of all of that stuff, of ministries, of programs, of community within a Christian church is precisely what Jesus is talking about here. It's to equip us as Christian disciples so that we can take the gospel outward and proclaim it to the rest of the world. Put simply, if the church is only ever about us, serving us, providing for us, making us feel included and cared for and happy, then we are failing in our mission. Because the gospel, while it ought to start here, ought also to ring out from here. We need to preach the gospel to the nations. And by that, what I think Jesus is really saying here is that we need to preach the gospel to anyone outside the church who doesn't yet know it, hasn't yet heard it, or doesn't yet believe it. That's our mission. That's our work. That's our calling as Christian believers. Not to just be part of the church so that we get to be saved, but to be spreading that message of salvation to everyone. And my friends, I do mean that it's our mission. It's our work. We're the ones who have been entrusted with that. It's our calling. That's the third piece here. 
That's because in verse 48, right after telling his disciples the gospel will be preached in his name to the nations, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. I've talked about this before, but the job of a witness is to report the facts, right? They recount the timeline, summarize the event, and give the who, what, when, where, and how of a certain situation. This person did that thing over there on that day. That's it, just the details, just the facts, just what happened. That's what a witness does. They witness to what they witnessed. Well, that's what Jesus tells his disciples to do here too. You are my witnesses, he says. You're the ones who have seen what I've done. You've seen what happened. You've witnessed my life, my ministry, my death, my resurrection. Now go tell others about it. Witness to them. And that, very simply, is what Jesus tells us as his disciples today to do too. Now we could understandably say, well, there's a bit of a difference between Jesus' disciples back then and us as his disciples today. Sure, they witnessed those things. They saw his life, his death, his resurrection. You know, they were there. So it makes sense for Jesus to tell them to witness about it, but we haven't seen any of that stuff. So what are we supposed to witness to? Well, there's a number of things we could say to that, but one of the simplest is this. Just like Jesus' disciples back then were called to witness about their experience of Christ, we too as his disciples today are called to witness about our experience of Christ. Certainly there's a time and a place for things like theology and apologetics and philosophy and all the rest. There are times and places where well-reasoned, well-thought-out, well-developed arguments are needed and personally, I love all that stuff, okay? And certainly, we need to know scripture and theology well enough to be conversant in it and make sense of it for others. But at a basic level, we are called to be witnesses. We are called to witness to the things that Christ has done for us and the evidence of his grace and goodness in our lives. And that's something that regardless of who we are, we can all talk about as Christian believers, right? You don't need to have a theology degree in order to do any of that. As Christians, we all have an account of God and our relationship with him. We have an account of his grace. We have an account of his mercy. We have an account of how he's changed us. We all have an account of how and why that gospel good news is good news for us. And that's what we're called to witness to. That's the work, the mission, the calling that Christ has handed off to us. We need to preach the gospel. We need to preach it to the nations, to everyone who hasn't yet heard it or doesn't yet believe it. And we as his witnesses are the ones to do it. That brings us this morning though, here at the end of this message, at the end of this series really, to the gospel one more time. Because it always amazes me when I think about this But God demonstrates such incredible grace just in the fact that he entrusts this work to us. I mean, I can't help but think that all of this would have gone so much better if Jesus had actually stayed and done it all himself instead of handing it off to us. If he'd stuck around, pursued his mission on his own, brought his kingdom into this world by himself, I've got to think that it it would have gone better than it has in the hands of, of the church. Right? And yet, for whatever reason, God chose to do it this way. He chose to call us 
to use us, to equip us, so that we could do the work of his kingdom with and for him. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the grace of our God right there. He took us sinners though we were, the weak things of the world, and he saved us, forgave us, and made us partners in his work to renew and redeem his creation. That's the work that our Savior has handed off to us. May he find us faithful in it. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we see your grace evidenced in so many ways. Each and every day waking up to a new day. That's your grace in and of itself. To have all of the things that we need, our daily bread, that's your grace yet again. And the fact that you use us as your people. That's grace beyond grace, Lord. Thank you for choosing us, for equipping and empowering us so we can go about your work in this world. Give us your Holy Spirit so that we may be faithful in that task as we preach the gospel to the nations as your faithful disciples. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.